to go in a church far, far away, um, a young man, not me, uh, wanted to see a, a new prayer meeting established in the life of the church that he was attending. Now, in many ways, that new prayer meeting that he was thinking about, it would probably be along the lines of what we do on a Sunday evening prior to uh, our worship service, uh, where we pray for the lost, you know? Um, the difference, however, was that this man wanted to see a sort of distinctly sort of worldwide focus in this prayer meeting. Do you see the idea? Uh, praying for the persecuted church every week, you know, praying for churches, for Christian organizations right across the world. Does that sound like a good idea? Well, the young man uh, took this proposal to the Kirk Session. And one of the elders looked at the guy and said to him, Young man, why on earth would we pray for people on the other side of the world uh, when there are so many problems right here on our doorstep? Now, I'm sure you'd agree that's maybe not the best way of looking at things. <laughs> but what I would hope is that that story there, what it does is make us consider, you and I, the horizon of our gospel concern. What is the horizon of our gospel concern? Like when, when you think about the work of the kingdom of God, where's your mind? Where's your prayerfulness? Where's your heart? When you think about the work of the gospel, is it just yourself and your friends that you think about? Is it just the people that your church is trying to reach in the area around the church? Is it just your colleagues at work and your friends? Is it just the people in the city? Or wait a minute, could it be said of you, could it be said of me, that we have this active and ongoing concern for the work of the gospel right across the world? Could that be said of us? Well, in First Timothy chapter 2, Having already, what would you say? He's, he's, Paul has a called for sort of encouraged Timothy, hasn't he, in his battle with the false teachers. Having done that, the apostle Paul now, he gives Timothy instructions about how public worship should be conducted. That's the sort of section that we're moving into now. How should, how should public worship be uh, conducted? And in this section that we're going to look at just now, what Paul does is he, as he speaks about public prayer, He gives teaching here. God's word gives teaching that really should confirm to you tonight and confirm to me what our horizon should be in gospel work. Now, what we'll do is we'll do something slightly different. It's not going to be, you know, just straightforward point one, point two, point three type sermon. Um, This is the intention. Let me set it out. What we'll do, first of all, is we'll consider the the instruction that Paul gives Timothy. So we'll think about what that command is. And then after that, what we'll do is we'll look at the, the, the reasons that Paul gives about the command. So you following me? You with me? We'll think about the instruction that Paul gives Timothy here. And then we'll look at the reasoning behind the instruction. And there's a few reasons. So, with that said, here's what I'll ask you to do. 
I'll ask you to turn back in your Bibles to First Timothy. And it's not the whole section that Gabriel, or that Paul read rather. It's just chapter 2 and from verse 1 to 7. So if you have that in front of you, if you've got it there, let's think about this. Okay. So, first of all, this is the instruction. This is the essence of the instruction. This is the big, the big point that we're dealing with tonight. So if you're, if you're taking notes, get this. The essence of the instruction is that there should be a global concern for gospel work in the prayers of the people of God. Can I repeat that just so that we've definitely got that? There should be a global concern for gospel work in the prayer, the prayers of the people of God. That's the big idea. That's the, the essence, if you like, the instruction that Paul's given to Timothy here. Now, are you on the ball? <laughs> this late on a Sunday night, are you on the ball? If you're on the ball, then you may notice that in the first verse in chapter 2, Paul uses four terms for prayer. You've got four terms for prayer. Do you see them? So he mentions, what have we got? He mentions requests. So that's the idea of petitions, okay, before God. Then he mentions prayers, which is obviously a sort of catch-all, a really general term for prayer. Then he mentions intercession, which is the idea of appealing to God. And then the last one surely does not need any explanation, does it? Do you see what it is? The last one is thanksgiving. So that's, we, we understand what thanksgiving is in prayer. Now, I'll tell you this for nothing. Book after book, as I'm sure Brad would confirm here, page after page has been written about the sort of various nuances of those four words for prayer, right? Volumes have been written about this. But what I hope you see is that actually in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is less concerned, I think, with the nuances of the words and the types of prayer. And he's much, much more concerned with the object of the prayer. See, look at this. What does he want Timothy to do in verse 1? Like, what's his emphasis? Do you see what he says? Look, he wants Timothy to be doing those things for everyone. Like he's saying, Timothy, Timothy, pray for, pray for everyone, man. Pray for everyone. Man, what do we do with that? Like, do we take this, like, do we take this very literally? This is gonna make my job very difficult, isn't it? Like, next week, when I get up and the public prayer, I've gotta pray for everyone? I mean, is this, like, every single person that I know? Every single person in the world? It's gonna be a long service next week. Well, obviously it doesn't mean that, does it? No, the sense of this word here, and I tell you, this is important for the remainder of the sermon. The sense of that word, everyone, or all, it isn't every single person. The sense of it is more all types of people. All, you following? All categories of people. All kinds of people. Now that's the way, we're going to see this tonight, that's the way that Paul uses the word all in the remainder of this section. It's also the way that Paul uses that word very often in the pastoral epistles. And if you really are on the ball tonight, you'll see that that makes a lot of sense here. Because what is it Paul goes on to do in verse 2? He goes on to reference a certain type 
person, doesn't he? It's Timothy. Pray for all people. Pray for all kinds of people. And especially what? And in particular, rulers and kings. So I think we're, we're digging in here and we're getting into the sort of essence of this instruction, aren't we? We're getting into the, the nature of this command. But I'm, I'm asking here, well, wait a minute, what's going on? Like why? Think about the context. Why is Paul writing to this younger guy, Timothy, who's in Ephesus? Why is he writing about this? Well, this is important. Get this. Although the instruction here is about public prayer. I'd argue that the dominant theme of the section that we're looking at tonight is actually the salvation of the lost. I'll say that again. Although the instruction, the specific instruction is about public prayer, the dominant theme is about salvation and salvation of the lost. You see, what was happening in Ephesus, where Timothy was based, remember he's in Ephesus, is that the false teachers there, they seem to have been limiting the scope of the evangelism of the church. So many commentators would say this. They would say that what the false teachers were seem, seem to be doing in Ephesus, I can imagine me saying this to you, what the false teachers were saying was, okay, we'll take the message of the church out there. But the false teachers were saying, but we're only going to be taking the message to Jews. We're not going to not mess about other people. Let's not bother with anyone else. Most of the commentators would say, that seems to be what's going on. The false teachers are saying, no, no, no. Let's just take this message and let's take it out to the Jews. And now do you see it? Do you see what Paul does? Paul writes to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, and he says, no, hang on, man. You pray. And in the life of the church, you pray for who? You pray not just for the salvation of the Jews, but you pray for everyone. Do you see it now? You pray for all kinds of people. You pray for for the salvation of all categories of people. Now, I think we can take that tonight. And do you know what? I think we can go a couple of different directions with this. Like, first of all, this is this is obviously applicable to to myself, to Brad, to, to Peter, to Gabriel, to the public prayer of London City Presbyterian Church, isn't it? Isn't it obviously applicable to, to us? Um, I think we've all been in churches where there's perhaps not much of a focus on public prayer. Um, let's do it like this. Imagine that we're away on holiday uh, somewhere else in England and you know we, we search online to find a church you know, we fancy going to church even though we're on holiday. And we, we go along and it's a church that, that clearly views prayer as just a bit of a preliminary. You know, the prayer is kind of viewed as just a distraction for all the singing that's going on in the life of the church, let's say. And, you know, a, a guy gets up and it's 30 seconds of prayer and that's it, you know. Uh, we pray for Peggy and we pray for Maureen that they'll get out of the hospital and we thank God for the freedom that we enjoy. Amen. Right? Hang on. Think about what we've got here. Now think about what Paul is doing. He is writing about this grand subject of how the church conducts public worship. And what's the first thing he mentions? 
Like, what's the very first thing he talks about? It's public prayer. Isn't that quite an incredible thing? What are we seeing? We are seeing surely that public prayer is an, is a vital component of the worship, the corporate worship of the Lord our God. And it should be global. It should be wide in nature. This is applicable to us. But let's go the other direction. It's not just for the elders, is it? I mean, this surely is an instruction for all of us here. So I'll tell you what, let me do this. Let me just repeat to you the very first three words that I ever said in preaching in this pulpit. Do you pray? Do you? And I mean really. And if you do pray, who do you pray for? Do you pray for yourself? Do you pray for your for future guidance? Is that it? Do you pray for your health of your family? Do you pray maybe for one or two friends, people in the church? Do you see what we've got here? Do you see what our horizon should be in prayer? We should have a global gospel horizon in prayer. You and I should have that. I mean, we should be reading the Release International website and praying for the persecuted church. I mean, we should be praying for the church in our homelands, praying for the church here in the United Kingdom. We should be praying for, what is it, rulers and kings and authorities that we might be free to reach out with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you know what else we must do? We must teach the children of this church the need for worldwide prayer. Why? Well, what have you got in front of you? What is it that God has sent to us tonight? Pray for who? Pray for everyone. Pray for the salvation of all types of people. So we've got the instruction. We see what it is that Paul is commanding Timothy to ensure takes place in the life of the church. Now, do you remember what I said at the start? We'd look at the instruction, and then we would try and unpack some of the reasoning behind this instruction. So what's the deal, really? Worldwide prayer for salvation of people in another land. Why would we do that? Okay. First reason we've got here, there's a few things. First reason we see is that global prayer complements God's desires. Global prayer. Why would we do that? It complements God's desires. Okay. Would you do this with me? Would you look at verses 3 and 4, please? And I tell you what, I'll just read then verses 3 and 4. So Paul says to Timothy, this is good. (laughs) What we've just talked about, this is good. And it pleases God our Savior. Why is it pleasing God? Who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. So I'm asking you whether you see the logic of what Paul is saying here. Like he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you pray 
for all people. Why? Because if you do that, you will be in tune with your God. You pray for all people to be saved. Why? Well, what does he say? Because God himself desires that all people will be saved. Now, I'm asking if you see the logic. Do you see the logic? You pray, you pray for all people because God desires that all people will be saved. Do you see the logic? Yes? Yes? Hallelujah. If you see the logic, surely you also see the theological minefield that we enter into with that expression. Do you not? I mean, what, what is it that Paul says here? He says that God desires that all people will be saved. What does that mean? God desires that all people will be saved. Are we wrong? Like when we talk about judgment, like when we talk about everlasting destruction, are we wrong in that? God desires that all people will be saved. Does this mean that all people will be saved? I mean, this idea of hell, are we wrong with this? Is it maybe temporary? Does it mean that that maybe ultimately all people will be saved? We have to firmly tonight establish that the Bible does not in any way teach universalism. We have to get that right. You, as a Christian, have to be clear on this. That the Bible does not teach that all people will be saved. What does the confession say about this? By, now listen, by the decree of God, Ready for the next bit? For the manifestation of his glory. God has decreed some men for everlasting life. And he's predestined some for everlasting death. The Bible does not teach universalism. But we're still... In problematic areas here, are we? I mean, think about this. It says what? It says that God wants all people to be saved. Now, are you thinking what I'm thinking with that? God wants all people to be saved. I thought this was Almighty God. Hmm? You know, think of what I'm thinking. If God wants all people to be saved, why is it not that all people will be saved? Hmm? How do we rectify this situation? How do we understand this? Well... It could be that you and I have to draw a theological distinction here between what God would ultimately desire and what he has actually decreed to come to pass. It could be that, or, wait a minute, what did we say at the start? The word, all, remember, meaning perhaps all types, all kinds of people. Surely that's what makes sense here, that God desires the salvation of all types of people, from people from every category. Surely that is the case. And when we see it resolved, isn't it true that what stands here 
is the sheer love of God that he would desire and he wants all people to be saved. Do you have a God of your own creation? When you think of God, do you think of of a God who delights in the judgment of the lost? Or a God that revels in the eternal punishment of an unreached people group? If that is how you are thinking about God, then you are wrong. God desires that people would turn to him for the forgiveness of their sin. And what should that do for you and for me tonight? Do you know what it should do? It should drive us to pray. I mean, what is it that we are doing on a Sunday night when we go into that room? There was, what, 12 of us, 13 people in that room earlier on praying for the lost. What are we doing when we do that? See, this week or tonight when you go home and you pray for the salvation of somebody in another part of the world, what are you doing? What does Paul say in verse 3? He says, if you do that, you are pleasing God. Isn't that just the most incredible thought? That if we pray for works of salvation, that is something that delights our Heavenly Father. Why does he delight in it? Because he is a God who wants to see all people saved. Okay. Another reason that we see for this instruction is that global prayer complements Christ's death. It complements God's desires, but it also complements Christ's death. Maybe you could argue to our detriment, but we at London City Presbyterian Church just now, we're not all that big in creeds. You know, the reciting of creeds. I know you, for the people who have been here for many years, you probably used to recite creeds. But we don't really do that all that much in the life of the church, do we? Um, but you know what it's like if you go to another denomination, let's say, you can go into a service and you can spend like half the time reading aloud from your notice sheet, can't you? I'm not knocking it in any way. You know, reading great things like the Apostles' Creed. Now, even if we're not that big on reciting creeds, um, you know what's meant by a creed, don't you? I mean, it's a creed. It's not a character from the office or something like that. It's a creed. What is it? It's a statement of faith. Isn't it? It's a concise, summary statement of faith. A creed. I wonder, do you remember what I said earlier on in the series? I said that when Paul put pen to paper, that in the pastoral epistles, he used a number of existing creeds in the writing of these letters. And most commentators would would agree that that's what we're dealing with when we look at verses 5 and 6 in this portion of Scripture here. So we've got an an existing creed, perhaps, that Paul is using. Now look at it, would you? Look at the first part. Paul deals with the person of Christ. If you look at verse 5, it's just marvelous, isn't it? Paul says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So again, I'll ask you the same question, asking this all night. Do you see the logic and the flow of Paul's thought? Like he, he's saying to Timothy, 
pray for the salvation of all kinds of people. And what's his logic there? You pray for these people because there's only one way for those people to be saved. That you pray for the salvation of the lost. Why? Because there is only one God. There is only one mediator. He's saying to Timothy, you pray for works of salvation because outside of Jesus, those people are lost. Do you hear me? Outside of Christ, they are damned. They are lost. But then the the second section, he deals not with the person, you'll see, but with the work of Christ. And this is Paul's focus. This is his emphasis. So if you look at verse 6, you see what he says. It's about the work of Christ. He says, there is one mediator, Christ Jesus, who did what? He gave himself as a ransom for all men. And if we thought we were on sort of sticky theological ground before, we certainly are now. Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Um, some of you love this building, don't you? And there's a there's a, a visitor this morning, and he talked to me at the end. I was trying to ask him if he was a Christian, and he was just want to talk about the building. Um, some people love this building. Um, some people don't like the building at all because, <laughs> because it's a bit too ornate. And I'll not say which category I fall into. But regardless of how we feel about the building, we accept, don't we, that it's a famous building. Now, why is it famous? Because this is the site, supposedly, of John Wesley's conversion. His heart was strangely warmed, okay? We get that. Now, what do you know about John Wesley? We know that he wrote some tunes and songs, hymns. We know that. What else would we say we know about John? We know that he was a Methodist. We know that he was what was called an Arminian. Not an Armenian. He wasn't from Armenia. He was an Arminian. Now what is, theologically speaking, what is an Arminian? Well, an Arminian believes that rather than our salvation being appointed by God, an Arminian believes that we can actually decide for Jesus. You following me? That rather than our salvation being about election, as the way that, in a sense, that a Calvinist would would put it, they would believe that that you can choose for Christ. You choose to become a Christian. You decide for Jesus. How do they get there? Well, an Arminian would believe that Christ Jesus on the cross did not just die for the sins and the iniquities of his people. Limited, definite atonement. They would believe that on the cross Christ Jesus died for even people who will never turn in repentance to him. Now, here's, here's the, the truth. I think if we had time, which we don't, you'll be pleased to know. But if we had time, I think we could, we could see from the rest of scripture that that's not right. But, what about 
this verse. Verse 6. What is it? Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all men. Wait a minute. This is the the Arminian verse. This is where they would go, isn't it? Christ Jesus... He's not died just for his people. He gave himself as a ransom for his people. It doesn't say that. What does it say? Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all men. Does that not teach unlimited atonement? Well, no. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? I hope you know what I'm going to say. What have we been saying all night, man? The word all. Isn't that it? Isn't it? Just as when Paul says to Timothy here, pray for all, he doesn't mean pray for every single person that has ever lived. He means all kinds of people. So here, Christ Jesus gave us a ransom for all. What does Paul mean? Now, think about the context. He's saying to Timothy, in light of the narrow-mindedness of those false teachers in Ephesus, you, Timothy, you remember this, that Christ Jesus did not just give his life as a ransom for the Jews. Isn't that it? Isn't it? It's Christ Jesus given his life as a ransom for all kinds of people, for all nationalities, from people from, from all categories. He's given his life as a ransom for all kinds of people. And I say to you tonight, if you're a Christian, would you please not let the language pass you by? Would you see, especially, especially after this morning, would you see what you've been told here? I mean, isn't it, isn't it the language of substitutionary atonement? What did Jesus do for you? What did he do for you? He gave himself. He did what? He gave himself. Do you see his death? A voluntary act. And he gave himself as what? As a ransom. Do you see what that means? It means, friend, that you were a slave. A slave. And yeah, there was this price on your head. You know, there was this ransom above you. And if, if that was paid, you could be set free. But guess what? By your sin, you were penniless. You were utterly bankrupt. You were destitute because of your sin. And what has happened? Oh, hallelujah, what has happened? Jesus Christ has stepped in. And though that ransom price was what? His lifeblood. What has he done? He's paid it for you. And he's paid it. And he's paid it in full. And I'm saying to you tonight, isn't that a message that the world needs to hear? Like, isn't that a message that all kinds of people need to hear? That is why you and I must pray. And then the last thing, the last reasoning that we've got here from Paul, global prayer complements, what have we had? Global prayer complemented God's desire. He wants all 
meant to be saved. Global prayer, it complements Christ's death. That was the other one. He's given himself as a ransom for, for all men. And then the last one, global prayer. So important because it complements the Christian's duty. And we just close with this. Like Paul is telling Timothy, you pray in the life of the church, you pray for the loss of all kinds and all nationalities. Now he ends, he gives one last reason why you do that. And as Paul so often does, he speaks about his own calling. You'll notice it if you look with me at verse 7. What does he say? says, Timothy, um, for this purpose, I was appointed a herald. For what purpose? <sighs> to teach the true faith to the Gentiles. Last time I'll ask you this. Do you see the logic he, he's, he's putting forward? Do you see the, the, the thread of his thinking? He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, would you please pray for the salvation of the nations? And we say, Paul, Why? And he says, because it's to that that I was called. He's saying to Timothy, his young brother in the faith, he's saying, would you please pray for the salvation of the Gentile world? Why? Because I, Paul, have been appointed the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, I want to ask all of you who are Christians here just now, whether you see why that should affect you tonight. It's because Paul's calling, as we so often say, Paul's, Paul's calling is similar to the call that is on your life. That as a Christian in the 21st century, you have a calling sitting on your life where you are called as a witness to the nations. So you see what you must do. What do we do? What complements that calling? You and I must be Christians who are ever prayerful about works of salvation. We pray. I mean, we, we know, don't we, that it is through the prayers of the people of God that God has decreed to act through your prayers. So do you desire the salvation of people in this church? Do you? Do you desire the, the, the salvation of, 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 of people in your, in your home? Do you desire see these people at work that you're going in to see? Do you desire their salvation? Do you desire the salvation of people on the other end of the world? What do you do? Well, what must we do? We plead with God. We plead with Him for these works of salvation. I'll tell you this, here's the dream. Let me set out the dream. The dream is that tonight, that the Holy Spirit of God would so place this upon your heart that that room in there, you see that room in there, that it would be utterly unsuitable for purpose. That's the dream. The dream is that next Sunday night, we wouldn't be able to meet in there. The dream is that so... 
convicted would we be, so desperate would we be to pray for works of salvation the next Sunday night that so many people would gather and plead with a holy God that we would have to meet out here to bow before him. And so I am serious when I urge you tonight as a congregation to lift up your eyes. First of all, lift them up to see the Lamb. See your Redeemer. See and consider the one who has had his life given for you as a ransom, but also would you lift up your eyes to see the lost? There are billions of people out there. It's not billions of people and they are Tonight, their souls screaming out for someone somewhere to intercede on their behalf before God. And they're lost and they're dying and they are bound for hell. Are you really telling me that we are just as a congregation going to remain silent, disinterested? We're going to remain mute? Or are we going to gather together or even in our home starting tonight? Are we going to plead with God? Are we going to plead that he would save souls? That he would act, that he would save people from all walks of life and people from all countries and all economic backgrounds? We plead with God for that. And that he might bring these people together on that final day to worship. The Lord Jesus Christ, that lamb who was slain. Friends, I'll I'll leave you with this. I just want to read to you again what God is saying to you this evening in his word. Would you listen to this? I urge then, first of all, that all requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made For whom? That all of these prayers be made for everyone. Friends, will we tonight ask God for a global gospel horizon? Let's pray.